0: Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Maggie Adairin-Pocock, and in this series we'll be discussing some of the incredible and unexpected ways the UK is using space to make huge differences to life on Earth, as well as taking a look forward to some of the amazing innovations we can expect to see in the future. In this episode, I'll be looking at the different ways that space data and connectivity have a positive impact on our supply chains, how we grow crops, and improve our food resilience. To help me explore these wonderful possibilities, I'm joined by Richard Tiffin, Chief Scientist at Agrometrics, Simon Pearson, Founding Director of the Lincoln Institute of Agri-Food Technology at the University of Lincoln, Mark Jarman, Head of Agriculture at The Catapult, and Paul Feather, who is also at the Catapult and is their Chief Technology Officer. From the invention of the sea drill to the introduction of steam engines, technology has always played a big part in agriculture. Now, during a time that has been coined the Fourth Agricultural Revolution the digital innovation that has transformed society and economies is now changing the shape of agriculture. With the most advanced technology at our disposal, it's a chance to answer some of the biggest questions and tackle some of the biggest challenges that we have faced for generations. How can we feed a growing population and reduce waste while respecting the Earth's biodiversity? How can we empower farmers, increase productivity and ensure sustainability? Mark, as the Head of Agriculture at The Catapult, you're responsible for managing and growing this market area and creating opportunities, as well as working closely with stakeholders across the value chains. But alongside the work being done to integrate space data and technology, there was also the issue of food security to contend with, as the world's population grows. Tell us more about this challenge.
1: We, we see figures of 9, 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. And how do we feed that many people? But actually, do we have enough land already? And are we producing enough food? And actually, we've just got to reduce the amount of waste that we have in the system. We're seeing changes in consumer behavior and wanting to source products that are more environmentally and, and socially compliant and, and sustainable. And that's putting different pressures on retailers on the supply chain. Obviously, the UK government and governments around the world are moving towards net zero target. And that places different pressures on the way that food is produced. I think you are seeing such a fast emergence of technology, digital systems, infrastructure, automation, and therefore a thirst for new innovation and new processes within the system. And that is driving interest in change. And I think if you also look at the actual farming system side, there's lots of questions around how food should be produced and the best approaches for doing that. So you're seeing things like regenerative agriculture and growing crops in systems with multiple crop types being grown in a field to provide those nutrients than just going for monoculture to ensure biodiversity to a drive to localising production and the whole kind of vertical urban farming uh, agenda. So... It's such a huge opportunity sphere. Our challenge as a Catapult is actually how do we ensure space is placed appropriately across the breadth of that, given it's such an underpinning technology
0: to the entirety of agriculture and food systems. So, commitments to meeting net zero targets could play a key role in how these processes change. Paul... As the Catapult's Chief Technology Officer, you head up a team of solution architects and experts in emerging technology. What have you noted are some of the biggest challenges in this sector?
2: Having worked in the Catapult and working with some of the communities, the agrotech sector, I think it's the increasing globalisation of the supply chains, the fact that food comes from everywhere and is moved everywhere across the planet, but there's this incessant need to conserve water, soil quality, to make sure that that agriculture is sustainable. We've also got the the aspect of increased consumer awareness, the understanding of the impact on the planet, whether it's plastics or erosion or climate change, and also increased discrimination. We see the, the kind of shift towards things like Essentially, organic products and the like. There's also, I think, one of that's 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 on the sort of positive side, if you like, um, and some of the potential for for creating change. But I think the aspect of increased regulatory pressures, in environments, agriculture, and the like is also creating tensions and challenges, and the need for industry to respond. And I think the final point would be the increased need for automation given the difficulty of accessing the labour markets that are going to help sort of maintain the food supply chain in perhaps in this difficulty that we're seeing at the moment where you really can't move about as much as you could previously so there's going to be increased sensitivity of, of people movement and, and that that's probably one of the main drivers that we need to be cognizant of.
0: Even though we do have a more globalised supply chain, there is still a matter of improving our overall resilience and maintaining a complex balance. Agrometrics are a government and commercially funded company that operate a data marketplace for the agri-food sector. Their focus is to enable organisations to safely share and monetise their data, whilst making it easier for data consumers to access the information they need. Richard, you're the chief scientist at Agrometrics, where you use data in the agri-food sector to improve productivity and sustainability. What challenges does the food system face?
3: The thing about the food system is that it is a very, very complex system. It works for many of us, As I said, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but nobody in the system or uh, as uh, users of that system has any idea of how it works and if you cast your mind back to 2008 the financial system the banking system was also met that description very well so we were able to go to banks we could deposit money we could borrow money the two were clearly connected somehow or other but nobody in the banking system knew how it worked it was a very complex system what happened in 2008 there was a very small shot to that system in north america relatively small and that brought the whole system down we all know what happened the financial system crashed and we're still dealing with the consequences of that now that is a feature of complex systems that small shocks can produce very unpredictable outcomes in those systems and so the food system because it's very similar to the banking system could also be subject to one of those kinds of events and my feeling is that it was bad when it happened in the banking sector but it would be you know 10 times worse if our food system was to collapse in the same kind of way as the banking system did.
0: Lincolnshire is one of the biggest agri-food counties in the UK and home to the Lincolnshire Institute of Agri-Food Technology at the University of Lincoln. Lincolnshire has been at the forefront of agricultural engineering and the supply chain elements. Simon you're the founding director of working on some very innovative solutions to some of the challenges currently facing the sector.
4: I'm particularly heavily involved in uh, in robotics because of things like labour availability, productivity. Covid's been an absolute disaster for areas in the industry, uh, particularly in terms of access to labour. Then we've got Brexit in terms of access to labour. So labour productivity is really key, particularly in the fresh produce sector, so fruit and vegetables and those sorts of things with that high dependency of labour. Then you go into the wider agriculture sector you've got environment change climate change uncertainty this year has been a disastrous harvest one of the worst on record wet periods followed by unseasonally warm periods climate chaos all sorts of problems then we've got reduced use availability of pesticides so some of the old diseases that we controlled now coming back great examples yellowing virus a beetle yellowing viruses which is aphid transmitted We've drawn some pesticides That, that the old disease that we control has now come back and we've now got no control.
0: Our food system is the Earth's biggest category of land use. And even though we can track our progress over time through pioneering inventions and process overhauls, it's still a system that we don't fully understand. And it's likely to be a lot more delicate than we realize. Richard You use banking as an example of how a small shock can cause a disastrous ripple effect when it comes to complex systems. But what would something like that look like with food?
3: Let's suppose that there's a drought that affects the wheat harvest in in Australia. The Australian wheat harvest is a significant part of the global wheat production. It's not the biggest, but it's certainly a significant part of it. And so that drought will have an impact on the world market price for wheat. It will increase that that price. And then let's suppose that as a result of seeing that price increase, the Russians decide that they're going to protect their wheat supply internally. And so they stop exporting wheat. And so that initial shock has now been amplified on the world market, has been amplified by a decision that's taken by a protective decision taken by Russia. The price gets even higher and what happens then is we start to see very substantial increases in the price of bread, which may not be a problem in developed countries, but we know that in the Arab Spring, the increases in the price of wheat that led to increases in the price of bread had a significant impact in precipitating that, the conflicts that, that happened during the Arab Spring. And so let's suppose that happens again now as a part of the wheat price going up and we start to see conflict in the Middle East. What happens next is that the conflict leads to the Suez Canal closing. And so what's happened now is that what was a temporary shock in uh, uh, the wheat harvest failing in, in Australia has now become a permanent shock because the Australian wheat farmer has now lost access to its major markets in the West because he can't get through the Suez Canal. So now that price of bread has gone from temporarily being elevated to actually being increased on a permanent basis. So that's a simplified example of how a simple shock in one part of the world can precipitate a chain of events that may lead to permanent changes in the supply of food to the world.
0: We can never know what's around the corner, but by improving our overall resilience we can make sure that we're in the best possible position to recover from shocks to the food supply chains. Paul, although we've seen a lot of innovation over time, isn't utilising space data for agriculture something we've been doing for a while?
2: For probably about 30 years, we've had the increasing exploitation of global navigation systems to support precision farming, the automation of assets, tractors and, and combines and the like operating in the agricultural domain. Increasingly, we're seeing the need for the digital applications, the traceability, the access to data and the conversion and transfer of that data that goes with the produce. So this is where the communications aspects really becomes really intrinsic to the way that the the agricultural systems work. But I think one of the things that that we're seeing as well is there's a upwelling of, of capability in terms of yield optimization as well as traceability that comes from understanding what's happening in the wider area in things like climate change or things like water consumption from reservoirs and and the like. So the aspect of satellite data is increasingly becoming important. One of the difficulties historically has been that you can get lots of interesting pictures but it's actually how do you turn that into actionable information and that's where some of the artificial intelligence techniques are starting to become really apparent in terms of the value that they can bring bringing in multi-sensor data so sensors from the vehicles or in the soil or from drones or from satellites themselves all of this data together can give a kind of operational picture and increasingly at real time and I think one of the challenges has been historically is that the cost for acquiring the data and processing it and the length of time it takes to process it has been a barrier to exploitation and that's really where i think we'll see significant changes over the next couple of years
0: satellites play a vital role in providing users across the supply chain with data connectivity and the locational information they need mark it's such a broad sector what are the specific areas that the catapult focus on
1: So we've got three main areas of focus, which is primarily to break up the biggest opportunities that we see for space within the ag system. Obviously, we're seeing huge pressures facing global supply chains and needs for retailers, fast moving consumer goods, traders, finance community to better aid their reporting of where, how and where and the challenges that are facing production. We see substantial impacts and and problems around things like deforestation, water usage, um, labour. So our sustainable supply chains focus areas around helping organisations in terms of their corporate reporting and ensuring compliance, traceability and transparency across supply chains. We see new legislation coming in linked to things like deforestation and, uh, and sourcing for businesses, and as a catapult, we're being asked by these organizations how can we convene the expertise, the capabilities, and the supply chain together to actually work at addressing them and creating solutions similar to the catapult successful spin at Ocean Mind, but in other areas. So that could be forest mine that we're looking at in deforestation, but it could be new offerings in water, or it could be just creating opportunities for businesses and organizations who have fantastic products and services that can be supplying those into retailers, into big, fast-moving consumer goods companies, to help them with their net zero targets or their corporate reporting. Because we're not short of capability, actually, as a Catapult, because we're neutral, we can go in, have those conversations and ensure that the right services are packaged together to deliver value to those customers.
0: Paul, as CTO at The Catapult, you've been involved in lots of discussions and encouraging innovation and the ways to apply these methods in different areas of the food system.
2: Probably the area in which we've had most impact to date relates to the marine environment, developing and demonstrating technologies that allow fisheries authorities and seafood buyers to ensure compliance with regulatory requirements for sustainable fishing on a global basis. While this started as a technology demonstrator project, applying automation and machine learning techniques to satellite data to assist fishery specialists, the techniques were so powerful that they were rapidly adopted internationally. We formed a spin-off organisation called Ocean Mind and that organisation continues to develop the technology and now provides actionable intelligence on a global basis which is helping to change behaviours in the maritime environments and protect those fragile marine environments. That's a real success and what we'd like to see is how do we take that forward into other domains as well and I think it's very exciting to envision the way in which satellite services can be used for observing, connecting and locating assets to support the agricultural supply chains and production systems on the journey towards a sustainable and responsible future. And this will continue to ensure sustainable food sources on a global basis, also protecting our environment and the biodiversity that we know is so important. And the projects we undertake with our partners is increasingly diverse, which ranges from organic crop monitoring with Sainsbury's, exploring how remote connectivity and distributed intelligence can facilitate automated agricultural processes, and thereby minimising inputs, and even tracking agricultural produce against, across the oceans and through the whole of the transport multimodal domains. I mean, Our role as Catapult it just continues to be to inform the users, to help system developers and integrators identify the potential for satellite services in a way that can make a difference and help them to pull together their collaborative partnerships to advance the technology and and help to grow their businesses. And, and we really, really do have some amazing research innovation organisations in the UK, as well as the businesses which are ready to apply these cutting edge technologies, ready to research, ready to advance them and innovate, to use the technologies in our own food systems and scale up globally. So I think the future is really, really exciting.
0: Latin America produces such a diverse range of agricultural commodities, from coffee and sugar to tobacco and beef. Now, the Catapult has an ongoing project to transform the way farmers produce cacao in Colombia. Can you tell us more about that, Mark? So uh, the Colco project
1: or the Colombian Cocoa control system as it actually stands for is currently two years in uh, to a project that was funded through the UK government's Newton Fund which was set up to really explore could the UK catapult centres collaborate to identify and address a value chain issue in a focus partner country which in this case was Colombia. So we're working with the Manufacturing Technology Centre, which is part of the high-value manufacturing catapult, to forge the ecosystem and partnerships and to, to create technologies and innovations and scalable solutions into a, the cacao value chain in Colombia. And we're working in that value chain because of a need to really move to, to a digitised system there, similar to existing coffee. The cacao sector in Colombia is a critical sector for the Colombian government because of the post-conflict agenda there as moving from a peace crop from cocoa to cacao. And it needs to be supported in its transformation and use of digital technologies uh, within that system. So as a catapult, we've convened currently 13 other partners beyond us from the UK and Colombia to work together to effectively look at products and systems within a wider service proposition that can be delivered to create value to farmers which is the critical bit and ensuring growth and prosperity for smallholders but also through the system through to the large scale chocolate companies given Colombia's huge potential for fine quality high aroma cacao in the global chocolate market and actually can we work as a catapult to ensure socioeconomic growth to Colombia and at the same time strong export opportunities for UK business, which is obviously what we are about and ensuring growth to UK PLC. And we're on that journey about to commence our third year's worth of activities working currently with between 350 and 500 farmers in in two regions of Colombia, but with longer term aspirations to really scale this and Move this into its own sustainable proposition without funding that can go on and really support the sector in its broader transformation, and that's the exciting bit for me about the project. Is as a neutral entity, as a catapult, we are able to break down some of those silos of trust. And some of the feedback that we've been having is that actually Colco is a bit of a blessing for for the sector in Colombia and is enabling organisations to collaborate together that wouldn't necessarily do so without an entity like the catapult there. And unless there is collective action, you won't get that wider transformation that is actually required. And Colco could be a real underpinning element of Colombia's National Cocoa Strategy to ensure we, we scale And beyond that, the framework that we've developed in terms of a cross-catapult approach into this can be scaled into other supply chains, both in Colombia and wider afield in other geographies, which, as we think about scale in the longer run, is what the catapult is about. How do we create those opportunities at scale for businesses leveraging our trusted status and not just businesses, research as well, to pull through that to ensure that actual we can work to address broader sectorial challenges. And that can be overseas, but also in the UK at the moment.
0: Connectivity is definitely key to strengthening our global supply chain and ensuring that rural communities are benefiting from this technology is crucial.
2: I think if you look at the expectation that we have, the way we live our lives these days, and the way we operate our businesses, it's increasingly data centric. We're driven to improve efficiency, um, to improve traceability and sustainability, to reduce costs, etc. And the connectivity is increasingly wireless, so people don't tend to necessarily work in a fixed location, um, they tend to want to take their connectivity with them. And that's quite challenging in wide areas, because the cost of deploying the infrastructure to provide connectivity in wide areas is, it doesn't go down, it's it's a very expensive endeavour. And as we see increasingly the the terrestrial infrastructure in in the urban environment, the connectivity infrastructure improving all the time, higher bandwidths, lower latencies, almost as much as you can eat. We don't really see that rippling out into the wider communities because of the the cost of, of deploying the infrastructure. So this is where satellites are really an essential ingredient in making sure that the rural communities are properly connected and able to function. And as I say, that's increasing all the time, whether it's for monitoring, monitoring livestock, monitoring the health of cattle, whether it's looking at the aspects of the equipment and considering how they're performing, whether that's uh, tractors or, or the like, and is it ready to be used, but also the, the aspect of in things like in-soil monitors. So all of these different Concepts are important, but they require connectivity. And increasingly what we're seeing is that the satellites and terrestrial systems are converging in terms of capability, at least from an enterprise perspective, in terms of being able to do useful work. And that's likely to increase.
0: Without data, none of this would be possible. But making that data accessible can be a challenge in itself. With the kind of data available in the agri-tech sector, sharing is beneficial to all involved but there needs to be an incentive to share it agritech's data marketplace gives data owners the opportunity to transform their data into revenue richard can you talk us through how that works
3: we now have increasingly large volumes of data available to us to um better understand the system to uh, remove some of that uncertainty about how it how it functions and how it operates. But in agri-food, partly because of the complexity of the system, but also because of the nature, particularly of primary production, where firms and businesses that are operating there tend to be relatively small businesses. As a consequence of that, the data that is there is not particularly accessible. I sometimes say we don't have big data in, in agriculture, we have lots of small data and so to be able to capitalise on that opportunity that is there because of big data, to start doing big data science in effect in the agri-food sector, we've got to find ways of making that data much more accessible. And so you'll hear people you know often talking about how important is that people start to share data but it's very unlikely that anybody is going to share data out of a motivation of trying to do good the only way in which I will share my data is through some sort of transaction uh, that takes place so the data marketplace is fundamentally where those transactions can can take place so in that data marketplace what I would like to be able to do what I as a farmer I would like to be able to do is to say okay um, I am going to give permission to somebody else to use, see my data or or, or whatever, because I'm getting something back from that person as a result of giving them that permission. And also, I'm happy that I understand how they're using that data and I'm comfortable that it's being used in a way which is not going to disadvantage me in other ways. So that value that I get back from that transaction could come in the form of money, Every time someone accesses your data, the marketplace could deliver a small payment into your bank account. But actually, I think it's much more likely that that transaction will actually be in the form of an insight that you're able to get back as a result of making your data available to somebody else. And the best and most simple example of that is a benchmarking insight. So if you put your yield of wheat into a common pool where everybody is recording their their yields of wheat what that enables you to do is to see where or well, to construct a league table if you like and see where you are in that league table and so understand how well you're performing and then start to ask questions about how you can make yourself more comparable to the best performers in that league table so it helps you to improve your business as a result of making that data available.
0: Alongside demonstrating the value of making the data available, there are also projects that demonstrate what can be done with that data. For example, helping farmers to determine the right time to spray crops.
3: First of all, we have an app which we've um, developed with Basseth, which is a major agrochemical company. The ways in which agrochemicals are are being used is sometimes perceived as not being very good for the environment. One of the ways in which they can be bad for the environment is if the chemicals are put on at a time when they're going to be subject to rainfall in conditions where that rainfall is likely to lead to the chemical being leached into watercourses. So there are some very complex protocols that exist that tell farmers when and when not to spray with particular agrochemicals that use information on both the rainfall, the crop, the way in which the ground has been tilled, the type of soil that's there and the location in relation to watercourses and, uh, and so on. And so what this app does is actually it takes all of that data from our data marketplace, so data on the weather, data on the soil, data on the types of crop that have been grown and both now and in the past and it translates all of that information into a very simple traffic light that says it's safe for you to spray your crop with this agrochemical that that it's designed for on this day, or it's not safe and it gives you a forecast based on the weather forecast of when over the coming seven days, it would be safe for you to apply the crop. So it's a very good example of how you can take data and a relatively complex model which is quite difficult to implement if you're a farmer and you get up in the morning and you've got to go through this sort of checkbox it's you know it's not there's not a great incentive for you to do it but if instead you just get your mobile phone out and you're in the field where you want to spray and it says red light don't spray then you know you're much more likely to follow the rules and, and not to pollute the water course.
0: There's an ongoing conversation about the amount of food that goes to waste in supermarkets, but there's a way to help suppliers who provide fresh produce to supermarkets to reduce that waste based on consumer habits. Can you tell us a bit more about
3: that? We've created a model, a crop model, which predicts the growth of of a crop and tells you when that crop will reach maturity. And Why that's important is in certain crops so for example in the case of sweet corn if you can get sweet corn into the shops on a Friday you're much more likely to sell that crop because people have a habit of buying sweet corn over the weekend and if it arrives on a Friday you're going to sell loads of the stuff and if it arrives on a Monday you're not going to sell so much of the stuff and so you're going to have waste of that product. So if we can predict that the crop is going to be available on the Friday, that's all well and good. If our predictions look as if it's going to be available on the Monday, we can get on the phone to the farmer and say, can you take some action to try and accelerate that crop so that it's actually going to be available three or four days earlier? And it may be that it's not quite as ripe. It may be that it's not quite as good a quality as it would be if you let it grow to absolute maturity. But it certainly will be good enough quality for the retailer to sell, and it's much better that they get it then than have it arrive three or four days later when it's almost certainly going to be wasted. So that's an example where we've taken data on weather, uh, some information about where the crop is being grown and when it's planted. And we use that with a a fairly sophisticated crop model to to predict how it's going to grow over time.
0: The topic of access to labour is a recurring theme in discussions around farming. And there's still so much uncertainty there. What we do know, though, is that robotics and AI are developing in a way that will provide incredible support to the industry. Simon, you're doing some very interesting work with robotics. So what we're doing at Lea is, is really focusing on two strands.
4: One, it's robotics, and second is digital technology to help. Agri food supply chain. On agri robotics, we're very, very active in terms of a number of projects on fruit harvesting and crop picking. So that's uh, particularly on strawberries, one of the most challenging problems in uh, agri food. How do you robotize the picking of a, of a strawberry? Very complex challenge, but there's, I think, 30,000 soft fruit pickers out in the UK at the moment picking fruits there's huge demand for that technology we're also looking at ways we can use robots to advance plant breeding that's through phenotyping and then we've got robots which are wandering around farms doing better measurements and one of the things we'll be looking at in the future is how we can use robots to measure carbon so we can help growers to get towards net zero using technology are some of the ways to do that and then we're also over. Half of me works on digital supply chains, so we're looking at how we can connect supply chains with data. So using AI, machine learning to try and reduce waste around your food supply chains, using blockchain technology to connect for food traceability, provenance, but also managing finance flows through farms. So there's a whole host of technology solutions that we are searching, and I think what's what's really what I really enjoy is that, I mean, I, you know, there is this notion that we're in this time of digital agriculture or or digital 4.0 for agriculture, whatever you call it, the digitisation of these farming practices. And we really are. And uh, I, I think the exciting thing is that the pace of change is really quick.
0: Is there a particular reason why there's a focus on strawberries? It seems like a very delicate process. So how does that work with robots?
4: We focus on that because in industrial demand, it's very challenging, but it's actually the most difficult thing to do because if you imagine the picking a strawberry it seems really simple but, but if you've got a robot in there you've got to have a robot which images the fruit which measures the color measures the ripeness you've then uh, you've got to identify it using cameras and machine learning and all those sorts of things then you've got to then move an arm to it pick it it's very soft you've got to do that without touching it so you don't bruise it you've then got to put it back on a robot and that robot's got to be autonomous. So that robot's going to, to take that fruit away to a pack house and do it all autonomously. So the complexity in just picking a single strawberry from robotics, it's the full stack of robotics that you've got to throw at it. So it's fantastic for research. So our um, guys love working in that space, but the opportunity to solve that problem for industry is really very significant. So industry enjoy it as well. So it's a great place to collaborate with, with industry on and to develop great science.
0: We've talked a lot about the use of new technology and autonomous vehicles in agriculture. But what actually makes a farm robot-ready? Connectivity
4: is crucial. Data is absolutely essential. The data bandwidth that we're dealing with is massive. So if you think of a single robot, you might have five or six cameras. There might be uh, multispectral cameras, so multiband. They might be 3D cameras, so depth imaging. Uh, they might be LiDAR-based, so laser-based. Each individual robot is generating a huge amount of data. Now, If you're going to robotise a farm, particularly for things like fruit picking, you need a lot of robots. So suddenly, your bandwidth that you need for your data processing goes up massively, and then you've got to then coordinate all those robots as a fleet. So the data scales, suddenly, it's just increasing exponentially as you're getting more and more robots onto these farms. So telecoms and teleconnectivity on those farms is what's going to make them robot-ready. It's absolutely essential.
0: Just like many other industries, the digitisation of agriculture is advancing at an exciting pace. Not only will these advances improve productivity and efficiency for farmers, but consumers will also be empowered. There'll be more traceability and transparency along the food supply chain, helping us make more informed choices to hold the industry accountable. Mark, the Catapult is in a very good position to be able to do some incredible work in this area. As head of agriculture, what sort of opportunities and innovations are you looking forward to? In both
1: the short term and the long term, there's going to be substantial development opportunities for the catapult across the enabling uh, assets of space. So from an imaging and monitoring perspective, we're seeing new constellations, the move to near real-time data intelligence, better systems being put into space with better optics are getting better quality data we're getting that data faster we've then got the computational infrastructure to enable the smarter analytics to be used on it and actually farmers are going to be able to exploit that data in closer to real time which is what they need because right now getting a a product back to a farmer 24 hours after the image was captured is just not fast enough and actually that's going to be exciting From a a connectivity side, obviously, we're all interested in what 5G can enable in terms of agri-robotics, IoT in field sensor systems and networks, smart networks, and the use of edge-based compute to really enable localized data analytics in real time and putting that analysis data into the cloud as part of the broader data system that can then link across to utilize all these different information sources to provide the farmer with the intel that they need to just providing simple connectivity from space and broadband and just transforming the rural community. I mean, if that doesn't get you excited in terms of what that can enable across the board in terms of healthcare, logistics, the, you know, education, you know, COVID-19 has certainly changed the way we have to work and operate. And actually what excites me about space and ag is just how much it links across into transport and health and education and enabling whether that's a rural community in Lincolnshire to a rural community in Columbia, you know, prosperity at a regional level, and actually businesses and research communities within them to really scale and grow and create opportunity. And that, from a catapult perspective, I always think is why I'm there. It's, I'm trying to create opportunities for businesses, for new research, but fundamentally make sure that space really is um, innovating for a
0: better world, which is obviously our vision. Richard. What innovations are Agrometrics looking forward to?
3: That's one of the things that we're doing in Agrometrics is attempting to take some satellite imagery from both SAR images and from optical images and translating that into things that are more easily understood by the agri-food community. And one particular example that I think is potentially really exciting in that space is the opportunity that it creates for us to make precision agriculture much more accessible to a much wider range of farmers than it is at the moment. i think in particular <laughs> this might be true of smallholder farmers in parts of the world that struggle with meeting their population's food supply needs and that opportunity is basically that you take farms that have got quite high levels of instrumentation, so farms that are already precision agriculture farms, and you combine that data that are coming from that, those instruments with uh, satellite imagery to train models that explain what's going on in that satellite imagery in terms of the kind of sensors that you've got on the ground so you might be able to infer what the water content of the soil is you might be able to infer outbreaks of pests and diseases from those sensors and from those from those images and then what you can then do is you can take those models that you've trained in those very highly instrumented contexts and apply those in farms that don't have that level of instrumentation and give them maybe not the level of accuracy that you would have by putting the instruments on the ground, but certainly a greater level of accuracy than you've currently got and enabling you to use your nutrient inputs more effectively, irrigate the crop more effectively, manage pest and disease risk more effectively as well. So for me, that's what's really exciting. It's about allowing access to you know, advanced technologies to get out into farms that wouldn't be able to access that kind of technology if it was only available in, you know, in costly instrumentation. And
0: Simon, what do you think we can expect in the next phase of robotics when it comes to agriculture? Clearly
4: I've got a bias towards robotics. <laughs>
0: you know, so, uh, and I'm
4: an engineer at heart, so I enjoy the machinery element of it, but uh, those are all digital machines. So I, I think robotics are going to be absolutely key. We're working on selective harvesting very actively at the moment. I think the next thing we're going to really focus on will be phenotyping, and that's robots that wander around looking at breeding traits and saying, well, actually we're going to use a robot, we're going to get some amazing sensors on those robots and they're already there. We're going to measure thousands and thousands of plots and we're going to start to really understand how we can accelerate the breeding of crops using robotics. And that's robotics as sensor platforms. And I think that's great because you're using robotic technology to select new varieties. But of course, when that farmer's got those varieties, they don't need the robotics. They can just grow them and then drive their productivity. But those gains will be underpinned by robotics. So um, phenotyping, I think, is going to be one of the big things. And what we want to see is a step change in yield of of varieties which farmers grow. So in theory, if you get very high yield,
0: you don't need as much land and that reduces environmental impact. And that's a good thing. As the tech becomes more intelligent and the data becomes more advanced, do you think we could ever see a day when we no longer need farmers?
4: Robots and data help inform. They never make the decision, and you're always going to need the farmers to make decisions. I think the other exciting thing about farming, and which is why many farmers do it, the diversity is extraordinary. You're faced with extraordinary challenges on the day to day level. You know that nobody could anticipate the weather of 2020 having a uh, the impact that it, it did. You will never, ever train a robot to have that level of intelligence uh, because they never see that sort of level of diversity. And every farm's different, every soil's different. That that needs farmers, and there's always going to be a green finger element to farming. Complemented, perhaps, or augmented with data and robotics, never replaced. I, I don't see that future.
0: Thank you to Richard Tiffin, Simon Pearson... Mark Jarman and Paul Fevre for taking the time to speak to me on the topic of all things AgriTech. And thank you to the Satellite Applications Catapult for making it all possible. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more between episodes about how space is empowering industries, then visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.